long while. So it is wonderful to be able to finally be able to present on a subject I'm knowledgeable of. As mentioned, uh, I'm not only a scholar of Zoroastrianism, I'm a Zoroastrian myself uh, and fairly proud about it. Uh, we are one of the world's currently smallest religions, but used to be one of the world's largest. And uh, we'll explain a little bit of that history as I go through. First off, uh, if everyone has seen the image in front of you, uh, this is a great uh, artistic representation uh, by my friend Farzana, who's also a Zoroastrian, of Zarathustra speaking to some of his original followers. Now, when we begin in any discussion about Zoroastrianism, we must begin, of course, with the founder. And uh, this is, uh, so Zarathustra, as known in the West as Zoroaster, especially by the Greeks and later spread on from there, uh, there's been different spellings, different pronunciations, different ways of proclaiming his name. But in the original Western, it would be closer to Zarathustra uh, there. So, yes. And when speaking of Zarathustra, it's impossible to divide him from his compositions, which are a mixture of a spiritual personal journal, ethical teachings, and uh, sort of spiritual exoteric and esoteric learnings. Uh, these are called the, the Gathas of Zarathustra. And also, academics nowadays have begun to also attribute the rest of the old Avestan canon uh, to Zarathustra as well. This includes uh, the four sacred mantras and also the Yasna Haptangaiti, which is believed to be uh, the first liturgy, the first composition of the first Zoroastrian community. So Zarathustra's immediate followers. It may have been also composed by him. Now, when we speak of Zarathustra, what sort of uh, time period are we speaking of? Well, we're speaking about anywhere between possibly 2,500 to 1,500 BCE, uh, making the man <laughs> fairly ancient, of course. And uh, we have some ideas of where he lived, mostly because of what he mentioned in the Gathas, uh, also gathering from not just surrounding scholars like the Greeks, uh, Northern Indians, and uh, even Persian scholars, but also uh, from uh, Zoroastrian literature and lore. So this would be sort of the area in which uh, Zarathustra would have been involved in. Uh, now, a lot of these terms may seem familiar to anyone who has studied sort of uh, proto-classical or even classical history uh, due to these being sort of the proto-Iranian civilizations of the time. Uh, there's the Bactria, Marjolania, uh, agriculture, uh, uh, archaeological complex, the BMAC, and that in particular we're going to pay a lot of attention to uh, because this may have been the area perhaps uh, we, we always put a, a question mark in parentheses after statements like these, just because it was such a long time ago. Uh, even uh, the most stalwart of academics are still not sure exactly where Zarathustra lived, but it had to be somewhere in this general area. Um, due to the descriptions of Zarathustra's own uh, homeland uh, and the archeological findings found in the BMAC area, uh, we are able to tell that this may be the area in which Zarathustra may have developed and was eventually exiled from, perhaps even including some of the Andronova area, uh, which is a bit older than the BMAC. Uh, but uh, 
in particular, I want everyone to pay attention to that little green dot to the left of the BMAC, which is uh, the Yaz culture. Now, the Yaz culture is fascinating simply because unlike its uh, surrounding uh, civilizations, it had uh, little to no conflict, but also in particular, it uh, did not bury its dead. And uh, this gives uh, archaeologists, uh, you know, scholars of Zoroastrianism a clue that perhaps this may be the area in which uh, Zoroastrianism first became established, uh, perhaps not as a state religion, but even as a popular religion in the first place. Um, this make uh, the burial thing in particular makes it very rare. As some of you may know, uh, Zoroastrians prefer, especially traditionally, uh, not to bury their dead, uh, in particular because this is viewed as a sort of polluting the elements polluting the earth, uh, especially nowadays um, when uh, especially medical scholars who have said that uh, due to, you know, all the medicines and vitamins and whatnot we take, uh, we actually do end up leaving a little bit of chemically induced pollution into the dirt. But uh, back then in particular, uh, this was taken to such theological extremes that uh, water was not to be polluted uh in any sort of sense uh you know and uh when dealing with water it had to be taken as a sacred matter and also when dealing with uh digging or involving the earth you one had to make sure uh not to leave even the simplest of uh say nail clippings or uh hair clumps or what have you uh so that they could be removed to prevent uh what was known as nasu, which is corruption or uh, decay. Um, but in the Yaz culture, we have actually archaeological evidence of these sort of theological social developments that developed there. So for the most part, uh, with a giant question mark at the end, scholars do believe that this may be perhaps the first area in which the rationalism became established before spreading across uh, not just the Iranian world, but most of the known classical world. Uh, classical scholars, of which I have no doubt there are many in here, would be very familiar with this map. This is the famous Achaemenid Empire, the largest of all Persian and Zoroastrian empires uh, to have existed. This is during the reign of Darius the Great, uh, who extended the borders of the Achaemenid Empire far larger than anyone else. While we may not be too sure about the religion of, say, Cyrus the Great. Uh, we do attribute to him elements of Zoroastrianism, but we are for sure that Darius and his successors, at least we'd say 85% sure, uh, that Darius and his successors uh, were definitely stalwart Zoroastrians uh, due to the inscriptions and uh, the various uh, notices left behind by uh, recorded scholarship, not just contemporaneously, but also later on as well. Um, as you can see, the extent of the Persian Empire does mark somewhat of an extent of Zoroastrianism. We have actually archeological evidence that extends farther than some of this. Uh, we have Zoroastrian archeological evidence in Duzang, which is modern, uh, around modern-day Xinjiang province, um, which uh, 
places the Sogdians and uh, the modern day Uyghurs, their descendants, as um, basically having had a Zoroastrian past. In fact, uh, one of the oldest Zoroastrian texts was actually found uh, in uh, Xinjiang province, and it's a copy of the Ashem Vohu, one of the sacred mantras I mentioned earlier. Um, and so we can tell that there were ties even in China. In fact, um, after the fall of the Sasanian Empire, we, which was the third large uh, Zoroastrian Empire, and probably the last, to be honest, um, we do see that uh, after the exile of the nobles, or at least the fleeing of the nobles to China, of which they already were intermarried with and had great relations, um, the, uh, some of the uh, divinities and also theological concepts of Zoroastrianism became rooted in China to where uh, the emperor, when a religion was proclaimed as being, uh, how should we say, official, uh, the emperor would choose one of their divinities to become one of the imperial sponsors. Uh, in that case, of course, this emperor chose Mithra, which would be fascinating considering that the emperor on the other side of the empire was probably also interested in ideas relating to Mithraism and the like. Uh, so perhaps there is some sort of imperial state tie to the way that uh, Mithra appealed to uh, both two of the greatest emperors of the time. Um, when it comes also to uh, further east, we have scholars of uh, Japanese society and theology that have uh, speculated that perhaps the early development of uh, Shintoism and also the clan structure of the Yamato people uh, was uh, first perhaps, and I put another big question mark here, perhaps inspired by um, Scythian uh, uh, mercenaries and the uh, soldiers that had uh, come over uh, perhaps as part of their residence in China uh, and their work uh, serving in various armies at the time. If we move further west, uh, we see, uh, of course, not just Egypt and Libya, but we do have uh, Zoroastrian archeological evidence in uh, parts of what we call Cyrenaea, which we see Cyrene over there at the far west, uh, but also in Sicily, Crete, and so forth. Um, and, oh, I see someone has, uh, there we go, thank you. But uh, when it comes to the south, we're, we're a little bit more shaky. Uh, we do know, as you can see, that there was Zoroastrian influence in uh, Arabia, and it is even mentioned uh, as being the case in Muhammad's own time, uh, the founder of Islam. Uh, However, uh, there's not much left, so there's not much I can say about it, but we, I can definitely say a lot when it comes to Armenia and further north. Armenia became an established Zoroastrian land to where the traditional religion of Armenia was then encapsulated into Zoroastrianism, which is the way that Zoroastrianism actually worked with many of the religions it came across. Uh, it acted more of a spiritual rit uh, <clears throat> ritual filter than it did as a sort of imposing faith. For example, Cyrus, when he liberated, uh, uh, liberated the Jews from Babylonian captivity, uh, famously upraised Marduk and his temples and uh, rebuilt them. Uh, and edicts at the time declared Marduk to be amongst the Yazata, 
which would be uh, translates uh, from Avestan as gods or divinities worthy of worship. Um, and so you see that uh, this happens in Armenia, Babylonia. There was an attempt to do this at e in Egypt, but not terribly successful. Uh, in fact, there was a funny incident in which uh, Darius accidentally knocked over the Apis bull, uh, which if you look this up, you can read more about it. Uh, to me, it's always seemed kind of comical, to be honest. Um, but yes, uh, and if you look in the southeast corner, you also see uh, some spread into India, modern day Pakistan, and so forth. And uh it continues to this day with the Parsi community of India uh, being one of the largest Zoroastrian communities still remaining. Uh, now, let us continue forward. Now, let's uh, speak a little bit about the Gathas. We'll go back in history a bit now that I've given you sort of a uh, brief overview of especially sort of the classical world. And we'll come back to it after I explained the Gathas and a little bit of the theology and philosophy that goes behind it. So this is, of course, the cover of my uh, my book, which is now available online and in bookstores in October 1st. But uh, the Sacred Gathas of Zarathustra and the Old Avestan Canon is uh, a translation of basically the works that are most attributed to Zarathustra and his immediate followers and are some of the oldest compositions within Zoroastrianism. Uh, we'll explore a little bit of uh, what they are here. So in particular, uh, the Gathas concentrate on almost, almost the life story of Zarathustra. I say almost because there are elements of his life story which come from a later time, or oral tradition. This is a famous image used in Zoroastrian circles to sort of display uh, the life of the Epic of Zarathustra, basically. Uh, if you look on the left-hand side, you'll see Zarathustra as a child. Uh, you'll see various miracles as well. And uh, in particular, you see Zarathustra in the middle receiving divine wisdom, uh, the enlightenment of Ahura Mazda. Uh, the Gathas only cover to be honest, a small element of Zarathustra's adult life. Uh, from receiving the call uh, to teach the mysteries and teachings of Ahura Mazda, Ahura Mazda being the chief highest divinity of Zoroastrianism, uh, who is said to be uncreated and has no match, no equal. However, uh, Huramaza does work uh, as a Hamazor, a co-worker uh, with uh, various other divinities, the previously mentioned Yazata, uh, the Amesha Spenta, which are considered direct manifestations of Ahura Mazda, and also with us, uh, the conscious beings, humans. And so we go from Zarathustra receiving the message to Zarathustra <clears throat> officiating the wedding of his daughter, Purchista. And this consists of the five Gathas, uh, which are in title. They would be the, give me a second, the Ahunavaiti Gatha, the 
this is followed actually not by Agatha, but by the Yasna Haptangaiti, which I will go into now. The Yasna Haptangaiti being actually uh, the first liturgy of the Zoroastrian community. It proclaims what they believe, what they venerate, and how. And uh, it is, uh, especially if you're wanting to see an example of a very, very early religious community, uh, especially considering Zoroastrianism is one of the oldest continuously practiced religions on, in the world. Um, if you want to see an example of early liturgy and early religious worship and practice, the Yasna Haptangaiti is very much recommended for some of that old time religion. Uh, and then after we have the Ushtavaiti Gatha, and we have the Spentamanyu Gatha, the Voshusastra Gatha, and the Vahishtoishti Gatha. Now, what's interesting is that uh, they are named after the first couple of words usually, or the first word usually uh, in a vestin uh, of that Gatha. Uh, in my translation, <clears throat> I only provided the English translation, but the Avestan transliteration and also the Avestan script versions can be found easily online. Uh, they don't need any extra scholarly work, of course, but uh, if you have an interest in seeing it in its original form, uh, you can find that online in various places. Um, now, this is a little uh, joke among Zoroastrians here as to what when asked uh, what do Zoroastrians, uh, what do the Gathas teach, Zoroastrians usually pump out good thoughts, good words, good deeds, to which case sometimes they are challenged uh, into saying you can't just have that as the whole of your faith. And that is actually fairly true. Uh, this is actually a fairly modern reduction of what is a very complex theological and philosophical framework. Um, it is actually closer to say that what we translate as the word good is closer to the word virtue, so virtuous, uh, which uh, to the ancients was far more important than any of these modern concepts of good versus evil, uh, more modern concepts at least, uh, especially seen amongst the Greeks uh, uh, who took element and uh, Greeks and Romans who took elements of virtu fairly seriously. Um, and so what, what are the ethics then and the teachings of the Gathas? Well, uh, Zathusra does denote, uh, what is unvirtuous and almost an element of, uh, apopathic theology. We're able to tell what is good or what is virtuous by being able to tell what is unvirtuous far more easily. So what is unvirtuous? It is considered unvirtuous by Zarathustra to be wrathful, uh, to be needlessly violent, uh, to be greedy, to be tyrannical, to be contributing to oppression, uh, to be dishonest, which is very important to Zoroastrians. Dishonesty contributes then to what Zarathustra refers to as the druge, which is the lie, uh, as it translates to. It is almost an comparable to sort of uh, the Hindu concept of Maya. It's an, an illusionary state uh, in which, uh, by perpetuating the lie, druge, uh, one traps uh, their 
uh, fellow humans, their Hamazors, their co-workers, or as the Russians like to say, their Ashavans, which is followers of the path of Asha. And we'll go into that. Um, and uh, it traps them in a sort of illusion in which they begin to lose sight of their true nature, which is their virtuous nature, their Ashavic nature. So Asha, like many other Avestan terms, uh, terribly complex. Uh, many Avestan terms are actually multi-definitioned. Uh, this was very common, especially in sort of this uh, proto-Iranic world, uh, to have terminologies that were uh, could mean 10 different things in one word. Uh, not too uncommon sometimes from the, our own use of English, but uh, definitely far more complex in that regard. So Asha could mean things, uh, truth, honesty, reality, ultimate reality, uh, righteousness, virtuousness, um, sort of comparable in many ways. Uh, if I were to use a pop culture reference, it's comparable in many ways to uh, the force in Star Wars, except it only seems to have a virtuous side. Um, when one aligns to the path of Asha, they are said not just in the Gathas, but also in uh, other later Zoroastrian texts, uh, that they develop a uh, a greater enlightenment, a greater uh, understanding and unfolding of knowledge. Uh, also that they gain not just spiritual strength and enlightenment, but that they also gain physical health, uh, strength, and development. Uh, so Asha, uh, how does one align to Asha? By following actually the threefold path, which nowadays has been simplified to good thoughts, good words, good deeds, which is the process that every Zoroastrian is supposed to take in regards to uh, making any thoughts, speaking any word, uh, conducting any deed. Uh, and this has continued since the early days, since Zarathustra, who mentions them uh, in the Gathas. Uh, Zarathustra also teaches that charity and seeking wisdom wherever it may be found are terribly important. So this marks Zoroastrianism a little bit different than other major faiths uh, that have survived, at least in uh, a lot of their forms, is uh, that Zoroastrianism is not what one would consider to be uh, closed orthodoxy. It does have some orthodoxy, especially in certain communities. Parsi community has its own orthodoxy, Iranian uh, Zoroastrians have their own orthodoxy. And of course, various diff different diasporic communities, Kurdish communities, even Armenian, uh, Central Asian communities, and in North America have their own ideas of what it means to be a Zoroastrian. Uh, it's because this is a very multifaceted faith that allows for this sort of debate and thought. Uh, one can have conflicting ideas from each other, but as long as they are based in the Gathas, in the teachings of Zarathustra and in the general teachings and traditions of Zoroastrianism, uh, one can still view another with completely different thinking as a Zoroastrian. This marks it as a little bit different, but also that Zarathustric in, uh, endorsement of seeking wisdom uh, wherever it may be found uh, means that Zoroastrians have sometimes incorporated elements uh, either to the celebration or the chagrin of the priesthood uh, into their religion. 
um, we see this in ancient times in particular when it comes to say uh, the integration in Armenia of native Armenian gods and Armenia interpreta of uh, Zoroastrian divinities. Uh, we see this also uh, when it comes to uh, the old Kushan Empire, which would incorporate uh, uh, divinities like Shiva and uh, even the Buddha into the greater pantheon of their empire while still considering themselves mostly Zoroastrian. The Sogdians also did this too, incorporating sometimes uh, Chinese elements. Uh, this could even be seen in Western China up until the Cultural Revolution, uh, which sadly, ever since then, we've lost any possibility of trying to find any of this, uh, at least for now. Uh, but there existed a, a Taoist Zoroastrian syncretist uh, faith that supposedly had existed uh, since time immemorial. So uh, we also see this nowadays. Uh, Parsis uh, in certain parts of India are very well known for helping to organize the uh, the Ganesh celebrations in India and uh, praise Ganesh as a Yazata, a divinity worthy of worship. Now, I'm not saying that every Parsi does this, but there are certain Parsi communities that do uh, not just encourage it, but celebrate it as well. And uh, of course, because Zoroastrianism is a combination of a communitarian but individualist faith that places personal responsibility and choice above all, uh, every Zoroastrian will differ. I joke that the, you ask 10 Zoroastrians about your, their faith, you'll get 15 different opinions. So when it comes to, let's go back to the choice and individuality. When it comes to choice and individuality, um, Zarathustra makes these so central uh, that he even makes it a core point of Ahura Mazda's own interaction with humanity. Ahura Mazda is described not as someone to submit to or even to uh, sacrifice in mass amounts to or even anyone to fear. In fact, uh, Ahura Mazda is mentioned as being, uh, as previously, the term I used was Hamazor, which is a friend, a co-worker. Zarathustra actually calls, uh, in a very endearing passage, calls Ahura Mazda his best friend and uh, one that he truly loves. And this shows a different divine human interaction um, that was fairly uncommon when it came to uh, dealing with divinities of the time. Uh, Ahura Mazda and the rest of the Yazatas are viewed as being in uh, something that may be reminiscent to anyone who has studied Neoplatonism. They're viewed as being purely good, uh, that there is no element of, uh, of the lie or of uh, unvirtuousness about them. Uh, then, of course, the element that may be popping to mind is where does this idea of uh, evil or unvirtuousness or uh, a dualism of Zoroastrianism come from then? Well, uh, Zarathustra marked that there are two spirits or mentalities within us, uh, which uh, differ basically into two categories. One, either you are virtuous, you've chosen the right path, you've chosen the path of Acha, or two, you've chosen the path of Druj and un unvirtuousness. And these two spirits, these mentalities are constantly in conflict with one another. This would later be anthropomorphized into the figure of Angramanyu, which would be known as Ariman, uh, the great 
demonic overlord of especially Sasanian Zoroastrian religion. Uh, Zoroastrianism has changed in various times again. Uh, I would say that opinions when it comes to Ariman uh, differ still to this day. Uh, a lot of, say, the diasporic community tends to view it in more metaphorical terms, as Zarathustra probably originally did, but also uh, is viewed still in literal terms in elements of the Iranian and also Indian communities. But that's not to say that they, as a whole, share the same belief system. Um, so that's where the dualism concept comes from, of course. Uh, and if we look at also um, how Ahura Mazda and uh, Zathusha's unfolding of reality looks like, this is a good chart of it. Uh, so Ahura Mazda, because choice is so important to Zoroastrians, uh, has, is viewed as omniscient, but not omnipotent. Ahura Mazda is omnipotent in what's known as the spiritual, the imaginal realm, uh, which is Ahura Mazda's pure realm, but is not omnipot uh, omnipotent in the physical realm. This is because Ahura Mazda, uh, ac according to old theologians and also later Zoroastrian texts, uh, they speculate that this is because Ahura Mazda has let us have make our own choices. And if Ahura Mazda were to say, become the totality of the physical existence, then our choices would be removed. By having omnipotence, then there would be, first, of course, no illusion of evil, but also no free will. And so instead, Ahura Mazda manifests in seven different forms known as the Amesha Spenta, which then have purview over seven different aspects of creation. I won't go into this too deeply, but you can, of course, do your own research in this regard. But I was uh, mentioned their names. There's uh, uh, Spenta Manu, which is the bounteous, the, the sacred spirit um, who has purview over human beings. Asha Vahista, which is Asha itself, who has purview over fire. Uh, Shastravarya, which is purview over sky and metals, uh, because the ancient uh, Zoroastrians thought the sky was made of uh, a firmament of metals. Um, the, then you have Horvatat, who represents wholeness, perfection, and uh, purview over water. Uh, Spentar Mighty. Uh, who deals with sort of uh, virtuousness and devotion, deals with earth. And uh, Ameratat, uh, who takes care of plants, deals with immortality and long life, which are important concepts to Zoroastrians who are consistently viewing themselves as warriors against death and decay. Uh, and then you finally have Vohumana, uh, which is the virtuous thought made manifest through Ahura Mazda. So all seven of these Amesha Spenta are also viewed as personality aspects of Ahura Mazda that we must then, at least Zoroastrians, must then embody. And uh, here's this list again, uh, just so you can take a look. This is sort of uh, the religious observances that are tied to each of these Amesha Spenta. Uh, as you can see, uh, this means that Zoroastrianism is heavily heavily concerned with environmental matters uh, and also with being charitable, with being honest, with being upright and so forth. And on the right, you can see in the right column, the religious festivals that tend to be tied to them in some way or another. Um, 
the Avesta, the greater compendium of uh, Zoroastrian texts, tends to uh, make a prescription of uh, following uh, some of these festivals in order to, uh, you know, propagate the veneration and worship of Ahura Mazda. Uh, this is an artistic representation of the Yazata of, uh, of Zoroastrianism. Uh, we won't go into naming them exactly, but this is using sort of uh, descriptions from the uh, the Yasna, the main liturgical texts of Zoroastrianism, uh, the Gathas, uh, the Yashs, which are the main hymns and prayers of Zoroastrianism, and other sources. Um, on the far right, you sort of see Atar, which is the representation of fire, uh, sacred fire, which not only is viewed as uh, being divine in its own self and worthy of worship, but also being a conduit of prayers and uh, hymns and the like uh, and sacrifice towards uh, Ahura Mazda. We see, of course, uh, in the middle pointing upwards, a popular representation of Zarathustra, uh, who in some communities is also <clears throat> viewed as a Yazata, uh, though that is in itself uh, a controversial topic, as are most topics among Zoroastrians. Um, and you see with the wings, that would be a popular representation of uh, Zaraosha uh, or Zurush, uh, who remained one of the more popular Yuzatas, uh, who remains until this day even a part uh, of uh, Shia Islam. Uh, as considered as an angel within Shia Islam, but Zoroastrians uh, consider Zarosh to be a protector of the mantras. If you look closely, there is a uh, sort of shining tattoos on the body because it was said that uh, Zarosh was uh, covered or made up of uh, the mantric and the holy words. So yes, I thought I'd show you that just so you get a sort of visual picture of uh, how the ancients may have perceived of these various uh, divinities. Um, now let's talk about the world in Zoroastrianism, especially the classical world. Um, I would say that the first major composition besides the Gathas and the teachings of the Magoi, the Magi, uh, which were one of the original priestly castes of Zoroastrianism in the uh, Achaemenid Empire, um, we have uh, the Shahnameh, which was composed by the poet Ferdowsi as the as the great epic of Iran, um, and this is an image from a modern version of the Shahnameh showing uh, the Shah Jamshid, who's known as Yama, and uh, as well. And uh, it, I bring up this picture because Yama is mentioned by Zarathustra uh, in a chiding sort of tone, uh, because a lot of these stories in the Shahnameh share stories that have been a part of Zoroastrianism even before Zarathustra, showing that there is a sort of continual line of belief and practice, uh, even from pre-Zarathustric times, uh, which sort of dispels a notion that was very popular in 20th century Zoroastrian academia of uh, Zarathustra replacing uh, what came before him. Instead, it seemed instead that he renovated what came before him, added new elements uh, and uh, sort of simplified other ones while also in, you know, including a lot of the traditional elements of proto-Iranic civilization. 
So the Shahnameh, uh, of course, has become very popular, has influenced a lot of uh, culture and uh, literature and media uh, in the world uh, from, uh, you know, Kurdish folk singers to video games such as The Prince of Persia. And uh, to show that it has had a massive influence in the world. However, let's go to uh, one of our main classical boys, Herodotus here. Uh, Herodotus, uh, of course, like any classical historian, must uh, take with a grain of salt and much research. Um, but Herodotus spoke a lot and wrote a lot about not just the Persian Empire, but about Zoroastrianism. He himself, you know, was born, raised, and lived a lot of his life in what would be considered the Persian Empire at the time. Um, Herodotus uh, spoke of Zoroastrians and Persians as uh, holding truth to the highest standard, uh, to being excellent horse riders, and apparently uh, to making decisions uh, twice, once when drunk and once when sober, and uh, to confirm that it was a right decision. Herodotus uh, preserved some elements of early Zoroastrianism, noting that uh, the Zoroastrians did not bury their dead, but instead brought them up to high hills. Uh, where they left them to basically have a sky burial. Oh, and that uh, a lot of early Zoroastrians did not have shrines or temples, but instead went to high places and high mountains uh, to conduct their rituals. Uh, we do know these elements to be mostly true. Um, and uh, there are other elements uh, that Herodotus would make popular in the classical world, including the belief that uh, Zathustra was the creator of philosophy, of magic, of astrology, astronomy, and so forth. Uh, we could call that nowadays the pseudo-Zoroaster. Uh, this is a very popular image taken from the School of Athens painting by Raphael, which hangs in the Vatican. Uh, in the uh, lower right corner, and I'll be wrapping up pretty soon, but in the lower right corner, uh, one finds Zarathustra holding a globe of the stars. This is because, uh, as the term I use, the pseudo-Zoroaster became very popular in the West, especially from the classical world, where magical texts, texts on astrology and astronomy, uh, texts even on uh, ritual and theurgy were continuously ascribed to uh, this Zoroaster. Uh, of course, we know that there's a high likelihood that they had nothing to do actually with Zoroaster uh, but may have had a huge influence on them uh, by Zoroastrianism. Uh, figures uh, such as Plato and others are noted by contemporaries of their time uh, or even accused. Um, one of my favorite uh, things to read about is how Plato was accused by contemporaries as having completely lifted Zoroastrianism, which just shows a mixture of somewhat understanding Zoroastrianism, but also a complete different understanding of Zoroastrianism that existed in the classical world than from what it what actually was. A lot of this is due to a combination of Herodotus and also uh, uh, it, it the ancient equivalent of having a friend that went to India and suddenly knows everything about Hinduism. Um, and so this Zoroaster still exists to this day. One can find statues on courthouses in universities and so forth uh, that shows Zathustra as lawgiver, astrologer, great magician, and so forth. Uh, a, in one of, one of my favorite uh, 
trivia tidbits when it comes to sort of Western esotericism. Uh, the only person that Crowley, Aleister Crowley, the great uh, occultist of the early 20th century, mentions more than himself is Zarathustra. And every single time that Zarathustra has nothing to do with Zoroastrianism. And this isn't because of Crowley's own invention, but because he's just following a tradition that existed in the classical world and continued to the Renaissance, as we see in this very painting, and onwards to the modern world of a misperception of Zarathustra and Zoroastrianism. So I hope actually that through my uh, short lecture here, you'll be able to go out and do more research, perhaps get my book, perhaps uh, you know seek online other texts, uh, videos and so forth uh, to enrich your understanding of uh, Zoroastrianism and Zarathustra and the Gathas and see the influence that they had on the classical world. Um, and you'll see that not only do we see it in elements of Plato or elements of theurgy and magic or neo And later on, sorry, I had a technical issue, but uh, we also see it in uh, modern day media, movies, television, music, and so forth. So yes, uh, thank you for being with me today. And uh, I'm more than happy to answer any questions anyone has. Well, thank you so much, Pablo. I could see the chat. Everybody has been asking lots and lots of questions. <laughs> um, you definitely have both a very interested and interesting audience because many people have also been not able to answer questions. So it's um, a very sophisticated conversation that's been happening, uh, which has been wonderful. Um, and so I don't even know where to start. I, maybe with one of your last points about this misrepresentation of Zoroastrian um does it and you said it to the modern era does that extend all the way to Nietzsche because that was one of the first points brought in yes um Friedrich Nietzsche's um association with Zoroastrianism has always been very fascinating to me of course was familiar with Nietzsche before I was even familiar with Zoroastrianism as most people in the upper western world are um however it, it it's interesting so First, uh, at his university, he was part of the team as a philologist, because that was Nietzsche's field, uh, to translate uh, one of the early translations of the Avesta into German. Uh, so he already had some sort of understanding of Zarathustra, uh, but he quickly developed his own personal esoteric understanding of Zarathustra. Is Zarathustra who wished to correct the mistakes of old, which is fascinating because some of the things that Nietzsche speaks of are mentioned in some way by Zarathustra, personal responsibility, you know, uh, no need to attribute one's own uh, unvirtuousness to some sort of deity, but to one's own self, uh, trying to remove divisions and dualities and so forth, enlightenment and knowledge seeking and, and fighting against uh, oppression and the like. So very, very fascinating to see that uh, Nietzsche had a severe misunderstanding of Zarathustra that carries on in the sort of European tradition. Uh, but he also had a deeply esoteric and spiritual version of Zarathustra. Nietzsche notes in his own diaries that uh, he, in his inspiration for writing uh, 
uh, also Sprock Zarathustra, was uh, he stood on his favorite mountain by his favorite uh, lake and uh, saw the spirit of Zarathustra come towards him. So he walked towards Zarathustra and they melted into one. And at that point, Nietzsche felt as if he was enlightening enough to write this book. Uh, so it fits into that pseudo Zoroaster because a lot of uh, the writers of the pseudo Zoroastrian corpus uh, also claim to have visions or have spoken in dreams to Zarathustra. Uh, so Nietzsche is only one of the latest in that long line of uh, the pseudo Zoroastrian development in the upper Western world. So there's, with regards to the kind of direct influence of Zoroastrianism on religions, um, there's been a lot of questions that, that kind of want to cover all of them, which is kind of a big question because you can see people want to know about the its, its relationship between the Mandean religion, about Gnostic Christianity, and also Jewish theology. So maybe to combine it, like, it, did it affect those different religions in very different ways? Is there one religion that influenced a lot more than the others? Maybe a comparative understanding because it is so ancient. It seems to have influenced everybody in some level. Of course. And uh, sadly, this will have to be broad and short. But um, I, Zoroastrianism has influenced everything from Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Greek philosophy, uh, Buddhism, Hindic philosophy, Taoism, so on and so forth, in a variety of different ways, some more than others. And if we're going to say which it influenced the most, I would say most likely the Abrahamic faiths. And also, along with uh, the uh, great rulers of the Indo-Greek kingdoms, uh, Zoroastrianism is responsible for keeping Buddhism alive interestingly enough so but um its influence on the abrahamic faith in particular judaism and uh christianity and islam uh fit in these categories after the babylonian uh the release of the jews from the babylonian captivity uh the um Basically, uh, Cyrus had a policy of sort of uh, religious filtering, as I mentioned before. Uh, this included Judaism, uh, in which uh, Ezra, it's very likely believed that uh, by uh, religious scholars that uh, uh, the judge Ezra was set forth to sort of reform Judaism in a more uh, acceptable manner to the Persian authorities at the time. Um, however, a lot of the major influences do include, for example, uh, one of my favorite ones to mention is if you're familiar with the demon Asmodeus, which comes from uh, sort of uh, Jewish demonology, that demon is actually a deva that is first mentioned. And devas are sort of servants of the druge, people who have lost themselves or divinities that have lost themselves so much in disillusion that they themselves have become corrupted and uh, unvirtuous. Uh, this comes from uh, uh, a deva that is itself mentioned in the Gathas because this is the very uh, deva of wrath. And so Asmodeus, uh, is uh is actually a zoroastrian demon of sorts as well um and also elements of uh afterlives that uh 
are not just Elysian field sort of types where people just relax and everything like that, but instead active afterlives uh, come from uh, Zoroastrianism and also um, conceptions of uh, messianic ideas, uh, which developed from uh, latter uh, Zoroastrian uh, thinking. Because uh, in the Gathas, we see Zarathustra mention Salshians, uh, which is the renovators. Uh, as a reference to the whole of the Zoroastrian community. But later on, Salshiants would take on a different meaning as uh, promised saviors that would come later on. Nowadays, uh, the community is sort of half and half or perhaps some percentage uh, and another of this, but uh, opinions may differ. Uh, but yes, and of course, Christianity, we see <clears throat> the wise men who came to visit Jesus portrayed as, uh, you know, labeled as Magoi, which is the uh, the term of the uh, the Zoroastrian priestly caste at that time. And also uh, they came to visit and proclaim uh, Jesus uh, according to Christian biblical texts. And uh, in Islam, uh, Salman al-Farsi, one of the closest companions of uh, the prophet Muhammad in Islam, uh, was himself a former uh, Zoroastrian Dastur, which is a Zoroastrian high priest who uh, became one of the early Muslims and is said to have helped in the collection of, uh, and basically uh, not composition, but uh, cementing of the Quranic texts and uh, also in um, developing some of the uh, ideas that we have uh, nowadays that have remained for a long while from uh, from the time period of uh, Muhammad. So we do see a heavy influence in all of these, and especially in conceptions uh, uh, as Christians would later develop a good versus evil idea, which developed definitely from Zoroastrian concepts at the time. <clears throat> but yes, uh, that's uh, the brief and short of it. <laughs> Yeah, well, I was just thinking that question basically could uh, I'm sorry, you've cut off there a little bit. Yeah, sorry, you're you're still cut off. But if if you'd like while you figure that out, uh I'll uh, I'll look at the questions in the chat and see what I can answer. Uh, let me see. I'll go from bottom to top. Uh, uh, I had heard that haoma was a psychedelic plant-based drink that were used in some of the rituals. Yes, haoma is viewed as a sacred plant and also a divinity uh, viewed to uh, to worship. Uh, is used in the yasna ritual where it is ground up. It is from the plant ephedra, uh, which is... Uh, sort of uh, produces similar effects to a sort of uh, light methamphetamine of sorts, but uh, it is uh, traditionally grown in the highlands of uh, of uh, ancient Persia. And uh, haoma mixtures may have differed from community to community. Uh, we do note that uh, it may have con mostly consisted of ephedra, uh, sometimes elements of, say, uh, pomegranate juice has been used or discovered in old receptacles. Uh, cannabic 
substances have also sort of been discovered as well. Um, there was not just a long haoma, but also the use of uh, what was known as a uh, as a uh, bong, which is known in modern day as uh, as bang in India, uh, and in ancient Zoroastrian times would be known as mang. Uh, which is a sort of cannabic drink that is mentioned being used in uh, certain Zoroastrian texts, uh, especially in um, the uh, vision quests of Arda Viraf, uh, the righteous, who was uh, viewed as being able to travel between uh, spiritual realms with the aid of Haoma and Mang. And uh, let me see. Can I just test if you can hear me now? Ah, yes, yes. Yes, okay, yes. very good. So, okay, one, that was, uh, thank you very much for uh, pivoting with my technical disability, um, technical problem. Can I ask, next question was to hear about modern day Zoroastrian conducts for their life, belief, customs, rituals. Yes, uh, so modern day Zoroastrians differ greatly, as I've uh, mentioned at various times during this talk. However, I would say, especially say, taking into context those very traditional communities and fairly reformist communities or modernist communities and all those in between, the elements that they do share in common is that they tend to uh, be initiated into the community through what's known either in India as a Navjot or in the Uranic world as a Sedre Pushi. I myself had one. Uh, it involves uh, ritual bathing, standing before fire, reciting things in a vestin, and uh, if I remember correctly, being very uh, confused and worried <laughs> because uh, one uh, who is new to that sort of uh, thing, uh, of course, uh, it has all the proper aspects of an initiation from ancient proto-Iranic times. Um, upon that initiation, one receives what's known as a sedre and a kusti. A sedra is an undershirt that is worn by most, I won't say all, but is worn by most uh, practicing Zoroastrians. Uh, when they wear it, it is, differs as well. Sometimes it is worn at all times. Uh, other times it is worn only during holy days, specific events, or amongst other Zoroastrians and family members. Um, and uh, of course, some choose not to wear it at all. It's viewed as a sacred undershirt of sorts uh, to act as a reminder to act virtuously. And uh, the kushti is a sort of rope girdle that is tied uh, around the sedra and uh, acts also as a reminder to act virtuously. Um, so Russians uh, pray almost daily. Some do not at all. But uh, some are uh, what I like to label uh, Novru Sarastrians, sort of like Easter Christians, uh, which, uh, you know, will show up to the festivals, to the feasts, of which there are many. Uh, I swear that Sarastrians must have the most holidays out of any faith. Uh, last time I counted, uh, there would be the equivalent if one's celebrated every Sarastrian holiday celebrated by every culture of Sarastrianism, there would be 50 plus celebrations per year. Uh, sometimes lasting anywhere between three to seven days. Uh, and so uh, a great, great uh, celebratory culture. Uh, Zoroastrians some, sometimes wear symbols of their faith. For example, this is the Fravahar, which I'm wearing around my neck. Uh, the Fravahar uh, 
it's debatable as to what it represents, even by academics. But uh, the most common opinion by academics, uh, and one that I very much do accept, is that it represents the Huarena. Huarena being the divine blessings and divine glory bestowed by Ahura Mazda, because it is uh, said in various ancient Zoroastrian texts that the Huarena is shown to be a winged man, a winged bird-like creature that can depart from someone if Ahura Mazda withdraws the blessings because of their unvirtuousness. And so it is viewed almost universally as the symbol of Zoroastrianism as well. Uh, Zoroastrians will attend events, usually at a fire temple or if there is none nearby. Uh, they gather together in each other's homes and restaurants uh, and invite local priests, which, uh, depending on the community, uh, are either hereditary bloodlines uh, any or anyone can become a priest, as seen in uh, Kurdish communities, sometimes even in some Iranic communities and in diaspora communities. Um, and uh, the priests will conduct certain rituals and prayers uh, which the community will join in. Most Erastrians cover their head when they pray, uh, either with a topi, a little round hat, uh, a fez, as uh, previously done in ancient, uh, well, not ancient, like 1800s time, um, or a scarf of some kind. Sometimes they will just put their hand over their head as a symbol of uh, deference towards Ahura Mazda and the divinities. Um, but yes, uh, these, and also a deep veneration and love for the Gathas and Zarathustra, uh, these elements I can safely say most Zoroastrians share with one another. Uh, and of course, the ethics of virtuous thoughts, virtuous words, virtuous deeds, uh, good thoughts, good words, good deeds, uh, and also holding dishonesty as one of the greatest unvirtuous acts that one can commit. Um, also charity. Charity is very important to Zoroastrians, uh, a very, very charitable community. Its charitable donations are outsized, usually from its regular size. They're anywhere between 100,000 to perhaps even less Zoroastrians nowadays. Uh, higher numbers have said 200,000, but I doubt them, to be honest. Um, but uh, there may be many more Zoroastrians in Iran, but we have no way of knowing uh, due to the current administration there. Um, but yes. Uh, that can be the long and shorts of it, uh, as I can share in this limited amount of time. Oh, it's really fascinating. Just to check, you can hear me still, right? Of course, of course. <laughs> okay. Um, no, no, it's, it's really interesting to, you know, you, you sort of listed out all these different practices. And I was thinking, oh, you know, they, they do that in the Mormons and they do that with the Jews. They, I mean, it's it, you can really see um, how it's influenced so many people, even in the modern version, um, how it's filtered through. One of the other questions was with regard to the, is there any evidence of direct influence on Hellenistic philosophy? And I mentioned that I knew that a lot of pre-Socratics had studied in the East, but even the concept of, of good ideas and good words and good deeds seems to be something you, know, you see in Aristotle, you see in Stoicism, um, but is there any absolute direct link? Um, besides Plato, who was openly accused in his own time of uh, basically being a crypto-Zoroastrian, um, which uh, I assume had more to do with the politics of the time period than it had to do with actual the content of his teachings. But um, I would say that uh, later developers of, say, Neoplatonism uh, had more influence from Zoroastrianism 
uh, than Plato himself. Uh, we see this in particular with the belief that the gods are all good, uh, that there is an emanationist concept regarding them, that, for example, Ahuramaz is viewed as the source of all, and so is the one in Neoplatonism. Uh, so if it had influence on anything, more than likely it would be a little bit on Plato, more so on Neoplatonism. Uh, other scholars, including Aristotle and the like, uh, do mention, uh, you know, Zoroastrian concepts, sometimes couching them uh, with Egyptian terminology and words. Um, and so it, it can be seen definitely in Hellenistic philosophy. I mean, it's impossible not to. Uh, the Persians not only bordered the Hellenistic world, but sometimes were part of the Hellenistic world. Uh, for example, the Parthians, uh, the successors to the uh, the Argad Empire uh, that was left behind by Alexander in Persia, uh, considered themselves to be Philo-Hellenic, friends of the Greeks. And uh, they engaged not just in a love of Greek philosophy and also encouraged Greek scholars to come visit Persian lands, but also um, themselves uh, started doing a syncretism, especially in Western lands, closer to the Hellenistic lands, in which uh, if, if anyone wants to see a great example of this, look up Comagene. Uh, which is modern-day Anatolia, and Comagene uh, still has physical examples of this syncretism, where one can see Ormazd, uh, a latter name for Ahuramazda, uh, Ormazus, or Mithra Apollo, and stuff like that, and so, or Vedithragna Hercules, and so on. And uh, this is uh, very fascinating, uh, showing that uh, Nowadays, we seem to have this idea of religious uh, exclusionism and purity uh, that actually would not have existed in the classical world at all, to be honest. Um, so <clears throat> I would say that, yes, there was a lot of influence on Hellenistic thought, religion, and philosophy, but it probably goes both ways in uh, some periods of points in time. Um, oh, it's, it's really fascinating seeing all these connections. Uh, one question I'd like to ask myself uh, is that our, our next event that classicalism is hosting is um, called How to Grieve. And we're doing that in almost exactly a month on October 27th with uh, Professor uh, Cornell Professor Michael Fontaine, uh, Stoic uh, Massimo Bigalucci, and Donald Robertson. And we're talking about uh, how ancient Greek philosophy and Stoicism helps people understand grief and handling loss. Uh, specifically with regards to Cicero's translations uh, on consolation. But uh, so I was very interested because I've been reading a lot about Cicero and, and reading about how the ancient Greeks dealt with grief and loss. The, I was wondering if there was any specific advice from Zoroastrianism. Um, and I've seen that there's a lot of talk about how they dealt with death with regards to the vultures and whether they still do it. And and so I was wondering if if the connection to the earth or, or what kind of, is there any advice on how to handle loss or how do they perceive death? Yes. Um, so death in Zoroastrianism is a fascinating sort of concept. Uh, Zoroastrians tended to view uh, the idea of death and still do in many regards as an enemy to be defeated, an illusion of sorts. Um, 
the, as I mentioned, one of the uh, Amesha Spenta has the idea of immortality and long life uh, as something that Zoroastrians should actually be seeking. Um, and this isn't just metaphysical ideas of immortality, but rather uh, ancient Zoroastrians concerned themselves on ways to avoid decay, corruption, and death to the point, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, they would quickly be rid of nail clippings, uh, hair clumps, and anything that could decay in a fast instance. Um, and of course, uh, seeking to avoid the pollution of the elements so that one may have a healthier, longer life. Um, this has influenced modern day Zoroastrianism in a variety of different ways. One, the practice of the dogma, uh, which is a sort of uh, famous towers of silence, uh, where Zoroastrians put their, uh, their dead in high places to receive uh, basically a sky burial picked apart by vultures and various other carry-on birds. Um, this, uh, this has continued, of course, sadly, the vulture population in some of these places is declining, or as mentioned earlier, uh, due to modern medicine, uh, the vultures are actually becoming sick and dying off because of the various chemical components that are now common in the human body. Uh, a great sad irony for sure, uh, but some Zoroastrians do believe in burial. Some bury their dead, uh, either completely environmentally, so that they may be one with the earth and contribute to the earth. Uh, others uh, cremate the dead, but some Zoroastrians view this as not good uh, due to polluting fire. Uh, and uh, some Zoroastrians bury their dead in concrete casings so as to not pollute the earth in that sort of sense. Um, However, uh, we do see uh, in modern day uh, all of these various elements, but we also see that this uh, combat against death and the illusion of dying is still uh, very prevalent in the way that Zoroastrians choose what they will do in regards to, in particular, their charity work. Uh, the Serum Institute, for example, in India, one of the largest producers of uh, vaccines at a low cost, especially for uh, what is known colloquially as the third world in our other Western world, um, it, 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 it donates a vast amount, millions of vaccines and so forth to cure a variety of different ailments. Uh, and it is run by a Zoroastrian family. Uh, when asked uh, not too long ago, uh, what was their inspiration for uh, entering into vaccines besides just, of course, you know, corporate reasons, money making, what have you. Uh, it was because of their faith, it was mentioned. A very simple statement that sort of echoes back to this idea that uh, illness, disease, famine, anything that would contribute to one's death or decay should be continuously fought against. Uh, there is no fear of death. Zoroastrians are told not to mourn the dead, actually, in various texts, um, but to celebrate their life. Because uh, in a lot of these ancient texts, death was viewed, as I mentioned before, as an illusion. Uh, one does not truly die. In fact, uh, to a Zoroastrian that believes in an afterlife, and uh, as I say these also, again, with question marks, because some Zoroastrians do, some Zoroastrians do not. But uh, those that believe in an afterlife believe that uh, one continues onwards in what is known as the House of Song. 
where one becomes one with Akura Mazda and the Yazata and thus continues for eternity to become part of the great orchestra of existence, so to speak. Um, and there is also for those, uh, it's interesting because it's an afterlife one chooses. Uh, it's uh, when one uh, receives the afterlife mythologically, what is said to happen is you reach the bridge of choice, the Shinvat bridge, uh, guarded by three Yazata, including Mithra and Zraosha. And uh, one uh, sees basically an image of their soul, either presented as truly ugly or as truly beautiful. Uh, and then one has a choice to either reject this uh, and thus uh, enter into the house of song, or if needed, to achieve a moment of purification in what uh, ladders or actions in a ladder development called Hamistagan, which was a sort of purgatory-like environment where one almost relived their lives in a Groundhog Day sort of style until they got it right. Uh, and then in uh, there is also the, the House of Eternal Darkness in which uh, one who has spurned Ahura Mazda in the path of Asha falls from the bridge and thus finds themselves in a confusing, putrid, foul-smelling lair with the worst-tasting food, uh, where they aren't, say, tortured there. In some elements, like in the Book of Arda Vidaf, they are said to be tortured. Uh, but most Zoroastrian tales of this world mostly present people as being confused and lost in this world, and scared and in agony. And... Um, that is not permanent. Zoroastrianism is universalist in that concept. There is a eventually a salvation of all uh, that happens at what's known as the Frasho Kareti, the final renovation, as it is. And uh, the Frasho Kareti is when evil is not destroyed, but defeated, it is said to be put into a giant hole in existence, and the hole is plugged. Uh, to sort of, uh, as a metaphorical lesson of uh, one containing one's own unvirtuous side uh, and gaining control of it. And then uh, the living and the dead are all brought back. Uh, no judgment is made. And uh, they are said to share in pure lives uh, of pure glory as both the, the physical and the spiritual worlds finally meld into one in uh, what is known as the great choice. Basically, even at the end, Ahura Mazda makes a choice, which is, uh, do you want to become part of the spiritual realm or not? And it is said that then, because uh, at that point, Zoroastrians will have defeated death and disease and everything, they will be enlightened to the point that they will want to become one with the spiritual realm. So that is sort of uh, the eschatology, the sort of uh, death and afterlife uh, conceptions of uh, the Zoroastrian world. Wow, it's amazing. I mean, it really makes for a fantastic world. You can imagine a video <laughs> game being made out of it. As well. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be very cool. Um, one other question was, you mentioned previously the uh, pollution, but in the talk, you mentioned what the Zoroastrian word was for pollution. Uh, the question is, is that comparable to the Greek concept of miasma? Miasma, yes, yes absolutely. Um, in fact, uh, Nasu and uh, Nasu has more in common with miasma than it has with many other concepts uh, in the ancient world. Um, it's uh, you know, it is said to be 
capable of physically manifesting itself, but it is more of an invisible rot, an invisible decay, uh, an invisible collection of uh, dust and dirt. And one of the texts, a theologian, an ancient theologian, medieval theologian actually, mentions it as uh, collecting on the mind and uh, needing to be brushed away, cleansed away. And so miasma is described in some ways as that it needs to be banished away. One needs to purify themselves from miasma and so forth. A, a comparable concept, if we're going to do some comparative religious thinking, is kegare in uh, Japanese uh, Buddhism and Shintoism, which is the concept that one ends up collecting sort of decay and spiritual dirt over time, and one must conduct ritual prayer and personal reflection to rid themselves of these things. Ancient Zoroastrians definitely believe the same thing. And a lot of the rituals and prayers that we have nowadays act as a sort of banishment system against Nasu and so forth. But also because Nasu can take physical manifested forms, uh, some Zoroastrians take great care to maintain very clean environments, uh, very uh, sort of meticulously uh, organized environments and so forth to make sure that uh, you know dust decay and whatnot does not also build up in uh, their physical world as well as their spiritual one. Oh, it's amazing how the concepts of pollution and purity have existed, you know, throughout almost all human civilization and in so many parts of the world. And if anyone studies anthropology, I mean, it still exists in many places. It's weird that in our modern world, we don't see it as much or see it as clearly. It's true. It's true. We, uh, we simply don't don't see that often. And I think this is very important. Recently, I was reading about uh, the cleanup efforts on the Holy River Ganges. And uh, how it was a uphill battle, actually, to convince people how important it was to actually clean up the Ganges. Uh, on one end, you had uh, some Hindu theologians and priests claiming, but the river is already pure. How can <laughs> a perfectly pure land be made unpure, you know? Uh, and then on the other side, you also had uh, secular folks who were saying, well, who cares about a river, you know, uh, you know, who truly does this really matter except to anyone but the Hindus. And um, eventually the way it was approached was by discussing these concepts with both sides. Uh, uh, the Hindus were convinced by saying that, uh, sure, the Ganges is pure, the Ganges is holy, but what one throws into the Ganges is not part of the Ganges and thus must be removed unless it provides a spiritual pollution, you know, uh, mm -hmm. to anyone engaging with the holy and pure Ganges. Uh, and uh, on the sort of uh, secular side, it was brought up that um, to care about the Ganges is to care about one's own water, to care about one's own health, to care about one's own environment. And it, it develops a sort of holistic concept uh, that I bring that up because in Zoroastrianism, the, the environment and the world and material existence that we live in is viewed as interconnected and holistic in that sense. Uh, one preventing pollution in one's own home, in one's own environment is said to prevent pollution and one's own world and environment on a macro scale. So uh, the microcosm reflects the macrocosm in Zoroastrianism in a lot of ways in regards to uh, pollution, maintaining purity, and uh, sort of ritual, spiritual, mental health as well. 
Wow, it's really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I remember we went to Varanasi and you see the kids like brushing their teeth in the Ganges and you're like, no, please don't. It's it. So <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that there, people were able to cross the cultural boundaries and, and discuss it. And I think that's really important to think about those concepts and, and how they exist to us still. Um, now, you've been very, very uh, generous with your time, so I don't want to take too much more time, but I have to ask you one last question. This is, again, a selfish one because I love linguistics, so I'm, I had to ask you, how much fun was it to study Avestan language, and do you ever <laughs> get to speak it with anybody else? <laughs> Uh, well, I, I joke that the the troublesome aspect of the Avestan language is that it is too ancient. Um, it is... Um, I remember my first class in Avestan under Dr. Almut Hinse, a great scholar of Avestan, lovely person, uh, who had to watch me struggle day after day in trying to figure out the language. Uh, eventually, I had to take a break, actually, from learning Avestan uh, because it was just becoming too complex for me. Um, so I, uh, I ended up learning combination uh, academically and also on the side by contacting uh, priests in the community, by also contacting uh, other great scholars of Avestin, uh, like Octor Shervo, uh, who is Professor Emeritus at Harvard, who's developed a lot of great uh, literature on Zoroastrianism and uh, Avestin, and a, a few other folks that uh, were able to give me enough preparation work. So I will say that learning Avestan is actually easy once you get uh, past the the very complex and strange seeming grammar of Proto-Iranic language. Um, however, uh, it is exceptionally easy, even easier learning Latin, Latin in my opinion, because uh, anyone can learn Avestan if, because it is a limited closed language. No new words are added to Avestan. The entirety of what exists in Avestan is all in the Avesta. <laughs> uh, so uh, it is limited vocabulary, limited language. And uh, if one's able to commit a little bit of memorization, take some notes. Now, I wouldn't be able to sort of speak Avestan fluently off the top of my head. Neither would I have anyone to do so with uh, because Fluent speakers are not the purpose of Avestan. It is a purely liturgical language now and an academic language. And uh, But um, I would be able to look at my notes, as I did during the, the translation of uh, the Sacred Gothas of Zarathustra in the Old Avestan canon. I uh, mostly referred to a lot of notes, a variety of different uh, scholars I had basically on call. Uh, I uh, consulted with about 25 different plus translations and their, uh, you know, various notes and end notes and uh, reasons why they translated certain words into that and so forth. Um, so, yes, uh, it's been fun and it was definitely fun if arduous mm -hmm. and uh, not to put anyone off of it. I definitely recommend you do so. There are a lot of free resources online for learning Avestan. And I think most anyone could pick it up if they're willing to dedicate enough time and effort to it. Well, I'm always a big fan of studying ancient languages. And I think um, it's it's always really exciting because it, in some ways it opens up a window in, into a world uh, that you wouldn't get direct access to otherwise. But also it, it, in doing so, you realize just with each word, how the concepts are so different sometimes. And um, it's just such a fascinating 
adventure. So I, I'm always happy when there's people keeping ancient languages alive. Uh, so on that, though, I would like to say thank you so much, Pablo. Um, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you. I want to tell everybody, please to check out uh, Pablo's new book, The Sacred Gathas of Zaruthia and the Old Avestan Canon, a modern translation of ancient wisdom, uh, which is something we can all get behind. And um, also, please, everybody, if you really enjoyed today's event, please check out our next one, which I mentioned before is going to be in October 27th about how to grieve, uh, according to Cicero and Stone and modern cognitive therapy. So we'll be discussing how to handle loss with philosophy. And um, again, we will be sending out a recording of this and a link. So if everyone just wants to say goodbye and um, I'll let uh, you I, say goodbye if, as well, please. <laughs> yes, uh, if I'd say uh, some closing uh, stuff. Uh, of course, uh, thank you for having me here. It's been wonderful. Um, of course, my book, The Sacred Gathas of Zarathustra and the Old Avestan Canon, uh, it's currently available on uh, on Amazon and various online booksellers, but will be available in physical bookstores in the English-speaking world, uh, whether that be Waterstones, Barnes & Nobles, so forth, uh, at around October 1st. So uh, do keep an eye out for that if you prefer physical bookstores. Uh, and you can find me online at mazdayazni.com which is my personal Zoroastrian info site. Uh, that is M-A-Z-D-A-Y-A-S-N-I.com. Mazda Yasni being the old Avestan term for a worshiper of Mazda, uh, which is what it means uh, as a whole, as a term. Uh, so yeah, mazdayasni.com is where you can find me and you can uh, also reach me there if you have any questions. Happy to always talk about Zoroastrianism and anything related to it. So yes, thank you for having me. And uh, I hope to see you all later, perhaps in future talks and the like. Bye. Bye. Uh, Pablo.